He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, the second part of an investigation into the security agencies and what they're doing to keep New Zealanders safe. The attack on Muslims worshipping in Christchurch has sparked doubts about the operations of the likes of the SIS, the GCSB and the police. Phil Pennington asks if they're doing all they can with the extraordinary powers they have. Jumana is questioning her faith. She's asking herself would it be easier if she was not a Muslim and did not have to feel watched or have her family watched. I don't live up to my potential because I'm always kind of worried if I say something wrong. Would I be flagged? Have I already been flagged? Um, Anyone that is outspoken, they feel like they've got like a radar on them. Ben comes across as a regular guy, if not quite mainstream. He used to go on anti-weapons protests, but not anymore. Not after he came under surveillance, after a light-hearted comment at work was reported to the authorities. So in the immediate days after these questions, I was obviously quite paranoid. Um, I hadn't returned to work at this point and told my work through email that I couldn't come in. Um, the reason I wasn't going to work was because I was obviously quite scared that somebody who I work with or somebody in my workplace had made this accusation. While surveillance is necessary, people who have come under scrutiny are asking how appropriate the focus is and speaking up about how it impacts on them. The operations of the spy and security agencies, the SIS and GCSB and the police, customs and immigration will all come under scrutiny in the Royal Commission of Inquiry, which is largely being conducted behind closed doors. Not surprisingly, the agencies do not like to talk about their operations unless they're forced to, and the secretive nature of their work often influences those they speak to. Often people who are brought in for a chat are so disquieted by it, they too stay quiet. Jumana, a professional and a young mother, lives in the North Island. She only agreed to speak if RNZ disguised her voice. I've chosen to keep my identity anonymous, um, not just for my sake, but for the sake of those who may it may have an adverse effect on, so my friends and my family. I've been given permission to say some stories, so um, and they've trusted that I keep their names anonymous as well. I'm trying to protect them from having even more eyes on them, I guess. She doesn't wear a headscarf, and her family have lived here for years. But they and others like them get a lot of attention at Auckland Airport, facing questions and having cell phones checked by customs. People who have lived here for decades um, are constantly stopped at border control in New Zealand, sometimes four to six hours searching their personal items through a toothpick. Um, And the family outside that are waiting for them... You know, they're wondering, has that person, if they needed medication, are they going to be allowed to take it? Are they mentally and physically okay? They've just normalised it. So everyone kind of expects this sort of thing to happen in New Zealand now. It happens so frequently at the moment. She says travel to and from the Middle East, or Muslim-majority countries, is especially prone to trigger extra investigations. Customs says it uses risk-based profiling to identify passengers that may need further questioning. 
It says religion is not a factor, but nationality can be, when determining if a passenger has travelled from or through a region of risk. However, Customs says no one nationality group is more or less likely to be questioned. But the attention is not just at border control. So, on a wider scope, the Muslims in New Zealand have been approached by SIS on numerous occasions for the past 10 or more years, be it from students in university activism, or the average Joe who just attends, like, you know, your normal Friday prayers, or you're just your neighbour or your friend. You know, they've been asked for information on other Muslims, um, and... Let me just put it out there, Kiwi Muslims in general have approached the police and SIS on numerous occasions if they've had any suspicions on anyone in the community, so we're not afraid to tell them when something wrong is happening, but they've had surveillance on them in regards to their phones, they've literally gone and knocked on multiple people's doors, people that I personally know. She says a friend this happened to was not advised by the agents of his right to refuse to talk to them. And in fact, it was suggested that under terrorism laws, he had no rights. A report by the Inspector of Intelligence and Security backs up the suggestion that security agencies are not doing enough to advise people of their rights. Jumana is clearly used to speaking up, but is also used to keeping her head down. So I 100% I stopped going to protests because... The university protests, um, you know, the the students that lead those have all been approached by the surveillance um, departments. The whole approach strikes her as inept and worse, alienating. I feel like they don't actually know who they're watching. The Muslim community don't mind having surveillance if it's, you know, to keep the wider community safe in New Zealand. That's not an issue for them. But if they have to go around and ask students or, you know, just someone that's popular or outspoken in the community for information on the actual community, you have to wonder how good is New Zealand's surveillance system. So how effective are the agencies at keeping New Zealanders safe? Dr John Battersby of Massey University's Centre for Defence and Security Studies says quite effective and also not biased against Muslims. The technical groups within the police and the intelligence services who are concerned about emerging extremist risk have always taken a fairly broad-based approach to trying to identify where that's coming from. So in the past, they have looked at right-wing groups such as the National Front. They've looked at emerging religious problems, and they've looked at disaffected individuals that may not have any political sway one way or the other, but they've shown a propensity to threaten violence or even to potentially use it. Dr Battersby has written articles and a book looking at the problems with New Zealand's approach to terrorism. He says while there have been many successes when it comes to nipping threats in the bud, they never become public knowledge. Frequently a crime is prevented so that it never goes to court and gets the publicity that would go with it. Once somebody comes onto the radar like that, they'll be assessing those people in terms of what risk they actually present. Often they'll be going and visiting those people. Those people will be under no illusions that they're being, they're being looked at for a particular concern. Uh, the vast majority of times they've been able to uh, rule that risk out. And once that individual knows that they're being watched, even for, for a short time, that generally has the effect of dissipating that risk. Uh, I'm aware of investigations in post 9-11 of investigations into, into right-wing 
uh, group. So it hasn't it hasn't faded away. If any kind of extremism comes up, it's it, it's very likely to be investigated. The government has focused on Islamic State as the number one terrorist threat since 2014, when it doubled down on a focus in place since the 9-11 attack in New York. Jumana says this has put Muslims in a box. I think that we've normalised being scrutinised so much that we never actually thought about being victims ourselves. And um, it's now that the Muslim community have become a victim with 51 people dying because they didn't have a file on someone who in any other country, I believe, would be flagged. The government has admitted that it was only last year the far-right got more attention here, largely due to far-right attacks, rhetoric and political developments in Europe and the US. The neo-Nazi massacre in Norway in 2011 that killed 77 people did not make it onto the radar. An OIA response shows it didn't feature in reports or emails at the SIS or GCSB. John Battersby says nevertheless extremist ideology has been kept at bay till now. New Zealand can look back with some satisfaction since 9-11 until March 2019 that none of those threats that have emerged overseas have actually emerged here and gone undetected. Is that by good design or good luck? A lot about security agency and police counter-terrorism activities remains secret, shielded even from Official Information Act requests. The police have delayed their responses to most of Insight's OIAs. They also declined an interview about their role in the security framework, saying the police can't comment on matters expected to come up at the Royal Commission of Inquiry, which they are absolutely committed to working with. The minister responsible for the SAS and GCSB, Andrew Little, says this is all for a good reason. The danger about giving away too much in terms of um, strategies dealing with national security interests is that you tell, you, you tell the people <laughs> you're trying to go after... Um, how are you going to approach it? And the you know whether we like it or not, in a liberal democracy, dealing with national security interests does require a high degree of um, secrecy. But the police, as well as the spy agencies, do go to some lengths when they think they should. On a workday morning around 9am a year or two back, two detectives called at Ben's home, he says, to ask for an interview. So we are here at a central Wellington cafe... Uh, this particular cafe is where I was questioned by two police officers. They were quite personable and said to me that it was a really casual chat and they just wanted to clear something up. At this point, I still didn't know what they were really getting at and why they wanted to speak to me. He won't use his real name and Insight agreed to disguise his voice. He's not a Muslim, doesn't have strong ideological views and couldn't think why they wanted to talk to him. They explained that an accusation had come into them that I was planning on, or I had told somebody that I had planned on travelling to Syria or somewhere in the Middle East, um, which to me was a shock, and obviously I told them that this was not true, and I had no plans to travel anywhere like that at all. Ben later learned a manager at his work had called the police after hearing what Ben says was low-level workplace banter about him planning to travel to Syria. I was shocked for them to ask me these questions. Um, they asked me if I had a political 
affiliation of rappers involved in any pol anything political. Um, they asked me what my religion was and if I had any sort of particular religion that I'd follow. Uh, I told them that I didn't because I don't. Uh, they asked me if I had any, if I traveled recently overseas or if I had any plans to travel, which obviously I told them I had no plans. He says his job did not survive the breakdown of the work relationship. So I left that job. Um, I hadn't really been going out of the house for a couple of days since that. Obviously that became quite ridiculous and so once I was out and about, I realised I had become quite paranoid about any sort of police cars or sirens that I would either see or hear around the city because I honestly at times did feel like I could be under surveillance or anything I would do would be seen, maybe phone calls I was making, texts I was sending. I, I wouldn't go to a protest now or a march just because I know that they are surveilled by the police and they do take note of who attends and I really just don't feel comfortable giving them any other sort of reason to believe that I'm at a politically extreme. Ben worries if he travels overseas, he'll be flagged. I'm Phil Pennington and you're listening to an Insight documentary on how the security agencies have been wielding their substantial powers. Do the police use informal cafe interviews like this with members of far-right groups? RNZ asked them this in an Official Information Act request lodged in March. We also asked about the proportion of cafe interviews where the subject was a Muslim or member of a migrant community or a white supremacist and about what happens to the intelligence gained. The police say they are still working on a response. The SIS has used similar cafe chats in Waikato and Auckland at least. Young Muslim men have told the Human Rights Foundation about being pressured in such chats to spy on their mosque. The foundation labelled the tactic unlawful and unethical. Two years ago, in the RNZ podcast Public Enemy... An unnamed man in his 20s told reporter Mohammed Hassan that two SIS agents in a series of cafe chats offered him money under the table to spy for them. Again, his voice is disguised. I said no to them for several of the job offers that they made. Um, but towards the end, like I got the impression that they were sort of starting to harass me. I got the impression, again, I have no evidence for this, I think they were just more interested in, um, in just sort of letting me know that they're there. I, I don't think they think I'm a terrorist. And I don't think they would have offered me a job if they thought I was a threat. This man and others who've been surveilled are worried about where the information ends up. He's been again. The last thing they said was they may want to speak to me again, which obviously leaves things in limbo and does leave you feeling quite vulnerable. Um, they've never spoken to me again. I don't know where, where they left this investigation, if they ticked me off a list or if they added me to a list or um, whether any of my friends or family have been surveilled or contacted, I have no idea. 
The SIS says its strict policies mean it only uses approved channels to share information. It says it doesn't share any surveillance or confidential material with the combined law agency group, also called CLAG, a domestic forum. Customs says the same regarding CLAG and adds that any other information it shares is in accordance with privacy laws. A state services inquiry in 2018 into the use of private investigators found some information shared in CLAG had been open to exploitation. Two years ago, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, Cheryl Gwynne, warned the SIS it must spell out that people have the right to refuse to be interviewed and will suffer no consequence. Since the Christchurch attacks, many Muslims have been speaking up about their perception of a dangerous bias against them and a lack of focus on white supremacists. Massey's Dr John Battersby says minority groups worldwide often feel focused upon, but are mistaken. He suspects actual extremists feel the same way. I would say if you go back to the days of the National Front marches, um, that they would consider themselves as constantly under surveillance. How do the SIS, police or customs assess the effectiveness of cafe chats, door knocking or airport searches? That's not clear. It's not the responsibility of the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. Cheryl Gwynne stated... By law, the role of the IGIS is to ensure the legality and propriety of the activities of the SIS and GCSB. That can involve looking at whether activities directed at particular people or groups are lawful, for example covered by a warrant or other law, and whether they are being carried out professionally and with integrity. The State Services Commission and the Intelligence Security Committee of Parliament do have a role in assessing if such practices are effective. The police have been interviewing people with far-right links since March 15th. A watch list of 100 names was leaked to some reporters. Counter-terrorism at street level is a police job. In a statement, they said, While we fully appreciate the interest in what we're doing in this area, we will not discuss specific groups or individuals or the tactics which we may or may not use. We can say that we don't focus exclusively on any one group. Inspector General Cheryl Gwynne has no oversight of the police, customs, defence or immigration. Muslim leaders have told Insight generally they trust police more than they do the spy agencies and that police have built better relationships with them. At the Manawatu Muslims Association Centre in Palmerston North, new locks and security cards are in use. Abdul Latif Smith installed them at what was previously an unlocked door. He's a veteran of three decades with the army and hotspots around the world. Now he's in charge of improving security at more than 60 mosques nationwide. Locks are one thing, a new national database of anti-Muslim abuse and attacks is another, and the aim is to share it with the police. I think it'll be very helpful. We are augmenting what they do. You're almost like doing community counter-terrorism, is it? <laughs> I wouldn't call it counter-terrorism. All it is is reporting what we are seeing. Um, whereas maybe in the past uh, some people might have experienced a racist rant or, and although being very upset about it, might have only talked to their family about it. We're encouraging those people to pass on that information. I would expect um, that police would look into that very quickly. Um, I think the police reaction to some of these events has changed um, and is in the process of changing and I don't think they're going to tolerate that sort of thing um, as much as maybe they did in the past. The police response to incidents of far-right abuse since March 15 has been uneven. 
In Christchurch in April, two armed officers let a man rant abuse outside the Al Noor Mosque. Embarrassed, the police gave hurried media interviews and launched a manhunt that ended up with the man pleading guilty to disorderly behaviour. By contrast, three days after the attack, a man stood outside the Manawatu Islamic Centre in Palmerston North wearing a large swastika. Police moved him on. They later said this was an appropriate response and have refused all RNZ requests to interview the local commander. Last week in Tauranga, leaflets with white supremacist messages were circulated. The police are looking into it. A Manawatu Muslim leader, Zulfikar Haider Bhatt, is not about to criticise the front line of defence. As far as I know, in Palmerston, I can talk about Palmerston, I haven't heard any kind of... There have been incidents, and whenever somebody contacted police, police have been very supportive and very helpful, and they, all, they have always been talking to the other party, and, that, and the cases were closed to the satisfaction of the affected people. The young Muslim woman, Jumana, says such reticence is understandable, but unhelpful. Of course they're going to say what everyone wants them to hear because we're so kind and peaceful and we just don't want to attract attention. We just we're forgiving and they're going to agree with anything that the police do. Less close to home, Mr Butt believes at a national level there is a blind spot to white supremacists. I believe that's true. I believe that is true. They have been concentrating on, and it has been explained by many national leaders, if you, if you know, many politicians, that we have been looking in only one direction. He can't recall local Muslims in Manawatu ever complaining about being surveilled. The Privacy Commissioner, John Edwards, also has no record of any such complaints from any Muslims nationwide. He is able to refer SIS or GCSB activities to the Prime Minister to enforce compliance, but hasn't had to do that either, not once in five years in the job. Mr Edwards points out he gets to see more than any journalist is allowed to of agency activity, and he has no doubt accountability is at a high level and rising. There's been a lot more public statements, both from the Bureau and from the service. Um, I think that's a good thing. Uh, they uh, are inherently conservative organisations in terms of that openness, um, but those steps that they've made are welcome. Tracking the far right has been compared by some politicians and analysts to looking for needles in haystacks. But Asher Goldman-Wilson has done it and says it's simpler than that. Just find a few hate mongers and watch who they talk to online. He joined a loose trans-Tasman group doing just this, calling itself Fight Dem Back, after far-right attacks on Somalis and the desecration of Jewish graves in Wellington in the early 2000s. The whole point about this kind of work, and they do it for the left-wing community, we already know that through Operation Aid and others, what it takes is time. You may not get any results from it in the first few weeks or the first few months, but actually if you want to maintain an online persona that it becomes trusted to the point where you find out about the things that they want to be less public about, you need to be in it for the long haul. Asher Goldman-Wilson says his group disrupted the far right by infiltrating chat rooms and impersonating them. Look, if a dozen or so people in New Zealand and the same in Australia can do it for years and can have the level of impact that we had, then I can't see why the full apparatus of the state can't dwarf that. And the only reason that it wouldn't is if they're not putting the effort in, if they don't think it's important. Since March the 15th, Muslim women have been speaking out about increasingly being on the receiving end of abuse. But before that, they'd been privately alerting authorities too.
In October 2016, the Islamic Women's Council met with the SIS. In early 2017, they met the minister in charge of the spy agencies, Chris Finlayson. An email released by the Department of Internal Affairs under the OIA, sent just days after the neo-Nazi clash in Charlottesville, Virginia in August 2017, says... Given the events overseas and the increase in Islamophobia Muslim women are experiencing here in New Zealand, we've also presented our concerns regarding the rise in the alt-right in New Zealand to the March meeting of government agencies and in a subsequent meeting with Minister Finlayson. Given many Muslim women are clearly identifiable by dress and are already a target for abuse, we believe this is an area of immediate priority. The Islamic Women's Council email says the government had been giving a polite nod to these and other concerns, but doing nothing. Chris Finlayson told Insight last week that the far right never came to the forefront during his time as minister. He says now that he clearly remembers meeting the Muslim woman. Certainly Islamophobia did did come up, uh, and I think I told you that. Uh, The question of the rise of the alt-right, I don't have a recollection of that. Mr Finlayson says he subsequently raised the issue of Islamophobia with the SIS and GCSB, but it was their operational call about what to do about the far right. So do the security agencies have a plan for dealing with radicalisation by extremist ideology of any kind? Otago Law Professor Andrew Geddes says New Zealand has no publicly declared centralised approach to identifying and combating radicalisation. The Corrections Department identifies extremists in prison under its new and small Countering Violence Extremism programme. But an OIA response shows Corrections has done only one piece of research into violent extremists. It refused to release this on security grounds. Corrections says it continually scans overseas for research. Barrister Felix Geiringer represented Nicky Hager over police raids on his home. He says his experience is that information is withheld by security agencies under the OAA without good reason and without sanction because the watchdogs Cheryl Gwynne and John Edwards are underpowered and under-resourced. He says New Zealand is a long way from the security agencies both protecting people and protecting people's rights. We want these agencies to have extraordinary powers. They do have extraordinary powers. We want them to have extraordinary powers because in some ways they, they can use those to protect us all. But, but those security powers aren't a free-for-all. They aren't to do with whatever they want. And unless there is really strict oversight and, and strict outcomes for, for misuse... I mean, the other frightening thing in New Zealand is that we know that these things have been misused... Who has been held accountable? I mean, the same people who are in charge when we were unlawfully spying on New Zealand, some of them are still in charge now. The March 15th mosque attacks have raised unprecedented questions about the powerful agencies responsible for detecting and preventing danger. What were they doing? We can only find out so much. But it seems the agencies have normalised the surveillance of the Muslim community and made less effort to tackle a group that's often defined by violent hatreds, the extreme far right. How systems and procedures will change, and how open the government will be about the goals of the security agencies, could become clearer after the Royal Commission. But some in the community are already wondering how much of what's considered will actually come to light. 
programme was written and presented by Phil Pennington. If you'd like to podcast some more long-form journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz slash insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Lovely to have you with us, and do join us again next time. Thank you.